Welcome to Open Your Eyes, a podcast about opening our eyes to a new view of life. Thanks for joining us today. You know, each day we live, we have a series of choices of where we spend our time, what to think, and how to go about our day. And some people choose to fill their day with positive energy and worthwhile things like uplifting podcasts. This podcast is born from a deep desire to help us all live a happier life and the firm belief that a powerful way to make that happen is to open our eyes to new ways of seeing life. So hopefully today in this time together, we will get a new perspective of how to think and live better. And if you enjoy this podcast, please share it with a friend, send the link and encourage them to listen. Perhaps it can benefit them as well. Let's get started. Today, I'd like to talk about how to thrive under pressure. Last month, something happened that captured the world's attention for several days. It was the top-ranking search on Google and the story of every major news network for over a week. The story and the fallout after the story's tragic end is a fascinating tale of misjudgment, the pressure to succeed, and tragedy. In 2009, two men, Stockton Rush and Guillermo Soline, had an idea. Create a fleet of small, five-person submersibles that could be leased by any organization and taken to the bottom of the ocean. They wanted to open up the ocean to all people. Rush was a millionaire in two ways, inheritance and investing that inheritance in tech companies. He loved space travel and had earned his pilot's license and worked as a flight test engineer. He also loved deep sea exploration, so much so that in 2006, he tried to purchase a submarine, but he discovered there were none for sale, so he built his own. By the time he created his submersible company called OceanGate, he realized there was significant demand for deep diving submersibles, and his company went to work to meet that demand. Now, the difference between a submersible and a submarine is that a submersible relies on a surface vessel to help operate it. A submarine can operate independent of anyone on the surface. And most people don't realize how deep and massive the ocean really is. The simple fact is that the average depth of the ocean is 12,100 feet. This means the average ocean depth is over two miles. Compare that with the average sea level of land surface on the Earth, which is only 2,600 feet. That makes the ocean five times deeper than land is tall. And remember that 70% of the Earth's surface is covered by ocean. So, on the Earth's surface, there is significantly more area of ocean. And it also serves as a reminder of just how much water there is on the Earth. And if you think about it, we tell stories about people who have scaled Mount Everest to 28,000 feet, but we hardly ever talk about men or women who have descended to the deepest part of the ocean, which is called the Challenger Deep. It is almost 36,000 feet deep. The Challenger Deep is found near Guam. This arching depression in the earth, which stretches for about 1,600 miles, is named after the HMS Challenger a British Navy ship that first recorded the trench's depth. Now, for years, 
Japanese, Chinese, American, and other countries' remote vehicles, hydrophones, and submersibles were sent to the Challenger Deep to map it and discover what life and other mysteries could be found there. The first manned mission to the Challenger Deep happened in 2012. It was a single-man mission, and it was done by Canadian filmmaker and explorer James Cameron. Now, Cameron is the director of films like The Terminator, Aliens, The Abyss, and True Lies. He wrote and directed Titanic and Avatar. In total, his films have grossed over $8 billion. In 1995, he started his work on Titanic, and to do so, he took 33 dives to the bottom of the ocean to look at the wreckage of Titanic. And many of these dives were done in a Russian mirror submersible. Made largely of titanium, the submersible is 26 feet long and 12 feet wide. But to descend to something deep as the Challenger Deep, Cameron and his engineering team spent seven years building a unique manned submersible capable of diving to this extreme depth. Well, at the depth of the Challenger Deep, the pressure Cameron's one-man vehicle would experience on that dive was an incredible eight tons per square inch. The vehicle was named Deep Sea Challenger. It was built in Australia. It is constructed of synthetic foam and is powered by lithium batteries and travels at a speed of only three and a half miles per hour. And given the use of lithium batteries, the submersible must have fireproofing. It also must manage condensation and have instrumentation. Plus, inside the little sphere, there's just a three-foot-wide space for the passenger. Well, in his first dive, Cameron spent three hours underwater, and it took seven hours to reach 12,000 feet. Then, on March 26, 2012, he reached the bottom of the Challenger Deep Trench. His descent to the ocean floor took almost three hours. He then spent three hours on the seafloor and then ascended back to the surface. In 1998, a British company, Deep Ocean Expeditions, was the first to sell tickets to the public at $32,000 a dive to see the remains of Titanic. Starting in 2002, Los Angeles-based travel firm Bluefish also ran Titanic dives, taking eight people over the next four years. In 2012, the company began accepting bookings with tickets running for $60,000. London-based Blue Marble sold tickets for $105,000. OceanGate charged $250,000 to get to the Titanic, which lies 380 miles off the coast of St. John's, Newfoundland. Well, last month, five people got into the submersible Titan to begin that journey. The first was Hamish Harding. He's the chairman of Action Aviation. He broke the Guinness World Record for the fastest flight around both of the Earth's poles in 2019. He also has records for the longest duration of a crewed vessel at deep ocean depths. Shahzada Dawood was also on board. He's the vice chairman of a Pakistani energy company. He brought with him his son, Suleiman. Suleiman had completed his first year of college in Scotland and was traveling with his father. The fourth passenger was Stockton Rush himself, founder of OceanGate. The fifth passenger was Paul Henry Nagolet. He's also known as Mr. Titanic because of his expertise with the wrecked ship. He has completed 37 submersible dives to the Titanic. 
Now, inside the Titan vessel, you don't sit on a seat. You sit hunched or lie inside the carbon fiber tube. In 2018, several leaders in the submersible craft industry wrote a letter to OceanGate expressing concerns about the design of the submersible. One weakness was the different materials used and put together, including carbon fiber, titanium, and plexiglass. An OceanGate employee aired complaints to the government regulators and was fired. Many attempts to descend to the Titanic and Titan were canceled due to equipment failure. So the risks of getting aboard Titan were evident. Well, not long into the descent of Titan's last trip, the surface ship lost contact with Titan. As time went on, there was no word from the submersible, and an alert was sent to the Coast Guard and other agencies, and a search for the vessel started. The problem is that the Titan could have surfaced using one of its balloons. It could have imploded. It could be sitting at the bottom of the ocean. No one knew. And if it had surfaced, the crew would be trapped inside on the ocean surface because they were bolted in. If it was at the bottom of the ocean, there was no rescue craft that could tow the Titan back to the surface. If the Titan had imploded, there would be debris in the water. Well, about 90 hours after Titan embarked on its voyage to the deep, word came back that a debris field had been spotted. Military experts found debris about 1,600 feet from the Titanic. Five major pieces of debris were found. Each end of the hole was found in a different place, and it was clear that the capsule had imploded due to ocean pressure. News surfaced shortly after the 19-year-old Solomon was terrified to go on the trip, but ultimately ended up joining his father because the trip was over Father's Day weekend, and he wanted to make his dad happy. He felt pressured to go on the trip, and that eventually cost him his life. Photos of the debris of the Titan led to two conclusions. The carbon fiber hull collapsed under immense pressure, and the front viewport of the ship, a plexiglass front window, gave way to the same pressure. You know, we underestimate the effects of pressure, not only in this case underwater, but the pressure we all experience in our life. All of us have pressure in our lives, and that pressure can cause us to act against our better judgment. It can weaken the strength of our vessel in life, causing cracks and weaknesses that can be exposed. And it is a force that we all deal with from time to time. We all feel pressure, time pressure, anger pressure, people, peer, fatigue, and money pressure are all part of our lives nowadays. The stress that pressure puts on us is something that every one of you listening to this podcast have felt. Sometimes the stress can seem debilitating and at other times, just an ever-nagging feeling. Interestingly, it's a popular belief that stress is bad and should be avoided at all costs, when in fact, stress is a normal part of being alive. And learning to lead it and manage it can lead to a happy and healthy existence. And there are people who seem to handle the pressure that comes their way in life, and there are others who get paralyzed by it. So, what do the experts say about how we can effectively deal with pressure in our life? And what can we do and help our children to do so that they are strengthened against the pressures in life and can navigate their journey successfully? Well, if you were to ask anyone, they would say, well, first, we need to remember that some stress is actually good for you. 
At UC Berkeley, stress researchers proved that moderately stressful events are good for us. They force our brains to keep learning. In their studies, the researchers exposed lab rats to a few hours of moderate stress. At first, the stress appeared to have little effect on the rats. But two weeks later, after repeated exposure, the rats' brains had developed new neural connections that improved their performance on memory tests. This same thing applies to humans. Exposure to intermittent bursts of moderate stress helps our nerve cells to proliferate. Put simply, stress challenges our brains and our brains respond to challenges by adapting and growing. So why is this important? Because people typically react to stress by seeing it as negative, and this causes them to lose resilience and give up or be discouraged. But when you choose to view stress as helpful, you create the biology, the underpinnings of courage. Some pressure does, in fact, help us become better. Next, here's what else the research shows. People who deal with the pressure of stress well experience the same stress you and I experience. The difference is they recover faster. In other words, they're resilient. Resiliency is the belief that our actions have the power to affect our circumstances. So take a good lesson about resilience from Maxie Filer. Maxie was the president of the Compton branch of the NAACP. He was a flag bearer for the Southern California delegation to the 1963 March on Washington, and he worked to foster racial harmony in South Los Angeles. Born in Arkansas, Filer moved to California and earned his law degree, his dream to practice law. So in 1967, he sat for the bar exam. He failed the test. While he waited to take it again, he worked as a law clerk. He took the test again. He failed. Now, you can take the bar exam two times a year, which Maxie did. He failed every time. In 1976, he ran for and became a city councilman in Compton. He served for 15 years on the city council. While he served and raised his family, he kept taking the bar exam again and again. When two of his sons graduated from law school, he took the bar exam with them. His sons passed. He didn't. Maxie took every review course available, but to no avail. The city attorney in Compton said, Maxie was just too busy doing good deeds to everyone around him. Every time the exam scores would come in the mail, Maxie would stack the envelope on top of the previously received envelopes on the mantel above his fireplace as a reminder that he would someday reach his goal and pass the exam. Even Dear Abby suggested that Maxie hang it up, but he was undeterred. In 1991, on try number 48, Mr. Maxie Filer took the exam again. When the envelope arrived, his son Anthony opened the letter and started screaming, Daddy passed the bar. Daddy passed the bar. After 24 years and $50,000 in testing fees, he passed. When Maxie was sworn in as one of California's 128,000 lawyers, he got a standing ovation from his new colleagues. Now, Maxie passed away a few years back. At his memorial service, he was remembered with three words, persistence, persistence, persistence. Now, it occurs to me that there is likely tremendous pressure associated with passing the bar. I mean, you've gone to law school, you've prepared, 
And now you take, and, but don't pass the exam. This would be extreme pressure. In fact, you may be interested to know that only 49% of test takers in California pass the bar exam on their first try. Now, in South Dakota, it's 90%. But on average, one-third of test takers don't pass the first time. That is pressure. But with that pressure, the resilient Maxi just kept trying. Resilient to the end. Now, I've noticed that in professional sports like tennis or golf or football, players make mistakes. They make the wrong move, they miss hit, they miss a catch or something else like it. And after that mistake, the pressure seems to rise. But I often hear these players have coaches who get them to mentally drop what has happened and focus on what's next. And by doing so, they leave the pressure of the past play behind and put all their energy towards the next item. They understand that mistakes happen. By letting go, they release the pressure of the moment and use that energy otherwise spent on stress towards the next play. This happens in theater as well. Improv is a form of theater, most often comedy, in which what is performed is unplanned or unscripted. It's created by the performers on the spot, and the dialogue unfolds extemporaneously. Now, one of the basic tenets of improv comedy is known as yes and. It's a protocol that allows for anything to happen, and it goes like this. No matter what your fellow actors present to you, instead of negating it or belittling it or disagreeing with it, your job is to say yes and. You accept the scenario as it is presented to you, regardless of where you wanted it to go, and then add to it. Volleying back with something your fellow players can respond to. Take the following example. Let's say someone in your group begins the improv scene by saying, Mom, no one is ever going to ask me to the prom. You respond with, Sweetie, of course they will. And by doing that, you're accepting the circumstances that they initiated, namely that you are mom and the prom is coming up. Then, as the improv continues, you volley back and forth, just accepting what was presented and focusing on what is next. This is an amazing tool in life as well. Imagine if you pulled your calf muscle so you can no longer run in the morning and you have to rest it for two to four weeks. Instead of lamenting and complaining of your injury and bad luck, you just simply say yes and, meaning you focus on what is next. Yes, I pulled my calf muscle, and I now have the opportunity to focus on weights and upper body strength in my exercises for the next two to four weeks. Imagine you started a business, but all sales have stalled. Instead of lamenting and complaining of your bad luck, you could focus on what's next and say, yes, sales have stalled, and I now have the opportunity to focus on new ways of bringing customers to the table, and I'll be better for it. I think that many people who stress less in life have the habit of what's next. When I was raising teenagers, I wish I could have used this mindset a bit more with my kids, never lingering on their past mistakes, not letting what they have done cause me to define them, but focusing almost exclusively on what is next for them in their life. Imagine the healthy mindset of a child who grows up in a home focused on what is next. And you know what? I believe you and I get this type of parenting from God. 
I believe he is focused almost exclusively on what's next in our life. He looks past our mistakes. He sees us as who we can be, and that is his focus. Next, people who handle pressure better than others have a better idea of how to achieve their end outcome. Because when you have a clear plan, you can focus on the plan and not the pressure or the circumstances or your mood. You and I may feel the pressure of having to lose 25 pounds. It can seem daunting and difficult. There's pressure thinking about how we will need to restrict our diet or change our habits or go without and other things. But if I have a clear plan of action, do these exercises today at these times and eat this food, I can focus on the plan and alleviate much of the accompanying pressure. So if you're leading a team and people are trying to build a business with you, how can you help them feel less pressure or stress? Have a path, have a clear plan that they can follow. This allows them and us to follow our plan and not our mood. This is an incredibly powerful principle. Life's pressures can come and go, but if you're following a plan, they won't matter. You know, when I speak to groups of people and I want to demonstrate the power of a plan or strategy, I show them a page of numbers that I've developed. On the page are numbers from 1 to 50. Each is printed in a different font and size or color, and they're placed what seems at random on the page. And I ask the people in the audience to find the numbers sequentially. So they begin searching with their eyes, and they find the number one, and then look around the page and find two, and then three. It's a really slow process. Then I add grid lines on top of the numbers. This places the numbers in a tic-tac-toe type of grid. And when I do, you can see that number one is on the top left, two is in the top middle, three is in the top right, and so forth. And with this pattern, they can count from one to 50 much, much faster. Patterns, plans, give us the power to avoid pressure. Next, people who don't give in to pressure have hope. You know, not long ago, I was speaking to the chairman of our company's board of trustees. And I was talking about the challenges with inflation and staffing. And after I lamented for a few minutes, she said, you know, I believe things are going to get better. I have hope. And this left me thinking, do people who have hope live differently? Do they make better decisions? And are they generally more happy? Well, I think they are. In Greek mythology, Pandora was the first human woman created by the gods. Zeus ordered her to be molded from the earth as a punishment for Prometheus stealing the secret of fire. And according to the myth, the gods gave her a jar that contained all the afflictions of man in the world and told her not to open it. Nonetheless, Pandora opened the jar, releasing the evils that visit humans, like pain and suffering, disease, affliction, etc. The only thing left in the jar and not released was hope. It stayed inside the jar. Now, one version of the story says, only hope remained there, under the rim of the great jar, and it did not fly out the door, for the lid of the jar stopped her by the will of Zeus. Well, over the years, scholars have hypothesized why hope was left in the jar. Was hope held as a punishment, meaning we could never have access to hope? Or was hope held back for a purpose? so that hope would always exist. 
Well, here's what I think. We always have hope. And when we have hope, we have more than we think. Hope's more than wishing. It's knowing, it's believing that a good outcome is coming our way. It strengthens, it's confident, and it's full of faith. In other words, it's a confident expectation that you, your circumstances, your strength will improve. Sophia Cora was 24 when she was diagnosed with poor eyesight in May, and in August of the same year was declared legally blind. She was diagnosed with keratoconus, a condition in which the cornea is unable to hold its round shape. It was a horrible time in her life. Not only was she facing the pressure of college and the stress of life and how she was going to provide for herself, but now it seemed hopeless without eyesight. And because of the pressure, she was tempted to quit many times, but something told her to hope. Well, not long after losing her sight, she met Christian while at college. The two instantly hit it off. They became close friends. And Christian researched the disease, her eye condition, and discovered a surgery that could help Sophia see again. And when he saw the cost of the operation, he then led a major fundraising effort to find the money to pay for that surgery. And with the money raised, Sophia went home to have the surgery. Well, the next year, 13 months after being diagnosed as blind, she had the surgery, and slowly, over a matter of months, she regained her vision. But during this time, she knew she had strong feelings for Christian, but there was a problem. She had never seen him. What if, when she laid her eyes on the good man who had given her so much hope and helped find and fund her cure, what if when she saw him, she wasn't attracted to him? Well, the day finally came when she saw him for the first time. She said, I decided to travel to see him after I'd built up the courage to tell him how I felt. It was really intense seeing him for the first time. I could see how handsome he was. He had a gorgeous smile. I knew I'd fallen for him, and I had to tell him how I felt. Luckily, he felt the same way. This is how it is with hope. We hope and pray and hope some more. And when we come face to face with what we're hoping for, it seems like it's been part of us already. Last, to deal with pressure, ask for help. I promise if you're feeling the pressure of a situation or goal, or maybe your teenage child is causing you stress, ask for help. There have been people who have likely traveled your road before. This is so simple, but done so seldom, we forget the power of asking for help. You know, other people have been where you have been. They know what you don't know, and they have strength you may not have today. So, ask for help. Now, I don't know why we are reluctant to ask for help. Maybe we're too proud or embarrassed or afraid. I'm not sure. But I can tell you this. I have people ask me for help, and I never think less of them. In fact, I think more of them. And the truth is, most of us, if not all of us, need help in one way or another. I promise the moment you reach out to the right person for help, you'll begin to see a way out of your situation. Remember, most often, when you pray to God, He responds by sending someone else to help you. But you need to be asking that someone else for help. So today, not tomorrow, think about who you could ask for advice or help or direction. Then don't delay reach out. 
Sometimes a simple text is all it takes. Ask for 10 minutes and see if they could give you the help you need. It can make a real difference. You know, recently, a friend of mine became president of a large company. He worked for me years ago, and one of the first things he did was ask for some time. We sat down in my conference room and talked. He stood at the whiteboard and wrote down a few of his challenges, and we brainstormed together the possible solutions. And he left, I hope, with a new view. Not because I said anything profound, but because he had a sounding board and a dialogue that helped him get some clarity. This is why I believe God asks us to ask him. Because when we do, we get to borrow his view. And his view helps us see things in a different, better way. So ask God for help. Not only will you get infused with hope, but I believe he will send clarity your way. Ask friends for help. Who knows if something they say will not lead you to the answers that you're seeking. So, as we end today, remember, pressure and the stress that comes with it can sometimes be healthy and push us to the next level of performance or thinking. Those who thrive under pressure are resilient and focus on what's next, not what's in the past. They follow their plan and not their mood or feelings created by the pressure. They hope. And most of all, they ask for help. All of these things can help us thrive under the pressures of our journey in life. Most of all, thanks for being here today. And don't forget to share this podcast with a friend and join us next week for another podcast as we learn to open our eyes to who and what we can become.